Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to continue looking at Article 12 from the epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the various issues that need clear confession with regard to the other factions, heresies, and sects that never embrace the Augsburg Confession. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard. He is the pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Richard, welcome to Concord Matters. Hey, it's good to be here, Sean. It is certainly great and an honor to have you on with us today. And as we jump into this article here, we covered last week pretty in depth, especially who the Anabaptists are. And we kind of talked about how it's basically a spectrum you know, kind of have all sorts of different factions that broke out underneath there, as we see in a lot of denominations and so forth as well, and a lot of faith traditions. And so we really spent really in-depth going into that last week. But as we jump into then these various articles, and as we kind of covered last week as well, that this is a catch-all article at the end of the Formula of Concord to basically just make clear where we want that clear confession But as we jump into talking about especially these various articles that we do not agree with from the Anabaptists that we reject and condemn even as heresies in the church, go ahead and give us your brief summary and capture of who the Anabaptists are and what we're going to see play out here then today. Yeah, very good point. You know, one of the things when it comes to us being confessors of our Christian faith, it is good very good to confess what we believe, teach, and confess as Christians, especially as Lutherans. However, there are times where we have to also confess what we reject, and that's very important. We must keep in mind in the 1500s, oftentimes, I mean, we see this tactic in everyday life as well. We find somebody that we don't like, or somebody that's heretical, or somebody that's an heir, and then we try to do the whole guilt by association, where we clump maybe an adversary with them, and we put that big negative label over the whole group of people, including that person we don't like. And so this happened back in the 1500s as well. And so it was important for the Lutherans to define not only who we are in that bold confession, but also to distinguish ourselves from the Anabaptists, to distinguish ourselves from the different factions and heretical groups that were existing during that time in the 1500s. And that's exactly what's going on here. In this Formula Concord, we see the confessors saying, you know, this is who we are, what we confess, but also want to make a bold note that we are not this. And what they are not is especially this Anabaptist teaching, what the Anabaptists stood for. And so again, it's a rejection of the heresies to distinguish not only who we are, but who we are not. And that's exactly what's going on here. And especially, as you said right there at the end, that these are a rejection of heresies. 
And as I kind of briefly touched on last week's episode, heresy really means that it's a break from the faithful teachings of the church. And we're going to see that right away as we jump into these first couple paragraphs. And I'll let you go ahead when you talk about it here, identify what that heresy is. It's an ancient heresy that we've seen come up in the Book of Concord as we've worked through all of the various documents of the Book of Concord quite a lot. But let's go ahead and jump in. Again, this is Article 12 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord. And on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. This is picking up with paragraph three. We'll also cover paragraph four, point one and two. And these are under the subheading, articles that cannot be tolerated in the church. Christ did not receive his body and blood from the Virgin Mary, but brought them with him from heaven. And then point two, Christ is not true God, but is only superior to other saints because he has more gifts of the Holy Spirit than any other holy man. All right, Dr. Richard, go ahead and cover for us there. What's going on? Why are we rejecting and condemning these? What's that ancient heresy that these are connected with? Yeah, you know, at first initial glance, you can look at this and say, what is going on? But, you know, as they say, the devil's in the details, right? And uh, as we look in the small details here, we find out that the Anabaptists, they actually, they believe that Jesus did not receive his body and blood from the Virgin Mary. He brought it from heaven. And so quite specifically, we could say that they would distinguish that Christ was born out of Mary, not from Mary. And so it's a very, very small distinction, but the ramifications are quite huge. What is going on beneath the surface or behind the curtain, if you will, is that this ancient heresy, again, we must note for our listeners that when it comes to heresy, there's no new heresy. As Solomon says in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun, and that includes the heresies. And the heresy that's kind of peeking through here in this paragraph and peeking through with these Anabaptists is this ancient heresy called Gnosticism. For the the listener, Gnosticism, it actually has that silent G. Now, not to complicate, but to simplify it very, very in simple terms, Gnostics believed in what we call a dualism, and they understood things in the realm of the material realm and things in the realm of the material realm, or we could say spheres, uh, a material sphere and a spiritual sphere. Now, we would, you know, as Lutherans and as Christians, we would definitely affirm that for us as human beings, we have a body and a soul. We would definitely affirm that. But here's where it gets tricky with the Gnostics. They took things such as material and the body, and then you have the soul, which is spiritual, and they said that the soul and spiritual things are better than the material realm. In fact, they even went a little further. They said that the material realm is evil, it is bad. And so Gnostics would teach that it was the goal of a human person to escape, the soul to escape this perverted, evil, awful body. And so if the material realm and the body is evil and bad, then therefore Jesus could not have this human nature through Mary because this is indeed a very bad material sphere. So he would have to bring that body from heaven. And then Jesus himself was born out of Mary, not from Mary, to kind of escape that material bad realm, if that makes sense. 
Right. And I like the way that you really kept that pretty simple for us. And that's really good because as I've said on this show, at least a few times, the heresies, various heresies of the church, and you said, well, there's really nothing new under the sun, and that includes the heresies. And so a lot of times you get into a lot of minutia and the heresies and so forth, and it does get quite confusing and overwhelming. And it does so even for me, I have to have a chart here in my office and things just to kind of keep those things straight, especially as I go through and face them in the Book of Concord on this show. And so I thank you for keeping that simple for us. And even in that simple explanation, I think perhaps some people may even still say that and say, well, why does that matter? And especially why does that matter today? And I think that we would still see Gnosticism present in some theology, even still that we see around today. And so I wonder, Pastor Richard, do you have any thoughts on that or where we might see some Gnosticism today? Yeah, very good question there, Sean. I was at a funeral several months ago. It was a family funeral, and the pastor was speaking with respect to the person that had passed away. Now, this is not a funeral context of one of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate churches. It was a different denomination. And as I sat in the pew and I listened to the sermon and the context of the funeral service of this person who passed away, and the pastor was teaching in a way that, indeed, he was correct in communicating that the loved one one's soul was in paradise with Jesus. We remember Jesus being on the cross saying to that thief, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. And so the pastor correctly asserted and affirmed that comfort that the deceased person's soul was in paradise with Jesus, but it was in what was not said. In fact, the whole rest of the context of the service, apart from some small parts in the liturgy, there was no mention of the body. In fact, In the actual funeral service, it was almost as if the dead body of this deceased loved one did not exist. You know, the family came in, the casket was there, it was covered in a funeral pall, a big white cloth, but it was almost as if the whole service, we kind of ignored that dead body right in the midst of that sanctuary. And I I leaned over and I told my wife, I said, this is a Gnostic funeral. In other words, the body itself was perceived as a shell, if you will. You've heard people say that before, that the human body is just a shell, kind of like a crab that maybe will leave that shell, and that shell can just be discarded on the ocean. It doesn't matter. And so the whole funeral service was quite sad because, indeed, the lack of mention about the importance of the human body really betrayed and showed us that the pastor had Gnostic tendencies of not mentioning that this body mattered to God. In fact, when it comes to funerals, we do celebrate and have assurance that the soul of our loved ones is in paradise with Jesus, but then we don't neglect the body. The body is important to us. We take that human body and we commit that body to the grave, and we actually sanctify our graves in our liturgy when we're out at the uh, graveside. We sanctify the ground, and we tuck this body into the ground to await, and I love this, to await the resurrection of the flesh, to await the resurrection of the body where that body and soul will be reunited together again. And so tragically, in America, we forget that part of the body being resurrected out of the grave, being reunited with the soul to be alive yet again. To be alive is to have body and soul put back together again. But unfortunately, we believe this Gnostic myth that the soul is all that matters, which the soul is indeed important, but it's not the only thing. The body matters as well. 
And then we come up with all sorts of different silly notions that when we die, our soul transforms into an angel or heaven is going to be us with our ethereal floaty souls bouncing on the clouds of heaven and just kind of whisking through the air without bodies. And that is a Gnostic heresy, a Gnostic misperception. And frankly, it just doesn't cut it. Christianity is so much more. Bodies and soul matter to God. Bodies indeed will be resurrected that great day when Christ makes all things anew. That is certainly an excellent point. And I like how you emphasize that for us, that there was a lack of focus on the body. And on this show, I tend to get on, you know, Sean's soapboxes, I call them. And that's a soapbox I get on a lot when especially you see this very commonly at funerals, as you saw there, where people will say, oh, that's not grandma, that's just her shell. And it just kind of makes me cringe inside. And yet what you're saying there is true is that what we're actually doing is denying the creed itself, where we confess that we look to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's what we confess that we believe. And so to forget that the body matters really denies a key article of our faith. And yet, as we also recognize that our Christian life is always one that's lived in tension, you know, there's a there's a lot of things that we have to hold in tension and balance and so forth. And so we can certainly see that we can go too far to the other way as well, right? That we can focus too much on the body. And I would say even specifically focus too much on the works of the body. And I've seen a lot of funerals done in that sense as well, where it's just basically how great this person is and how much they did and those sorts of things. And that's really distressing as well. And I think that ties in to the third point here in paragraph five of article 12 of the epitome of the formula of Concord here. And so I'm going to go ahead and read that. And then we'll just kind of briefly talk about that as well. Our righteousness before God stands not on the sole merit of Christ alone, but in renewal and therefore in our own godliness in which we walk. This is based in great part on one's own special self-chosen spirituality. In fact, it is nothing other than a new kind of monasticism. So once again, that kind of returns us to the whole issue that was going on at the time of the Reformation is too much focus on works and the works that we do in the body as kind of earning our salvation and our spiritual blessings that they seem so focused on there too. Yeah, that's always the tendency for us, specifically towards our sinful nature, which we can call the old Adam. I'm reminded of this wonderful, wonderful quote of a youth many years ago, and she was a junior in high school. Her name was Brittany, and she said, you know, Pastor Richard, when I see my spiritual fruit, or when I see the spiritual fruit that is done in me, uh, she's referring to the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the works of these holy impulses that were given. She said, my old Adam likes to eat that fruit. <laughs> I just think that's such a clever way of putting it. We are prone to always drift away from this beautiful doctrine of our justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. In fact, I've heard it said before, and I think this is a very, very simple way of understanding this, is that when it comes to the person and the work of Jesus, or when it comes to the idea of grace or faith, all of those we could have conversations with many Christians and many various backgrounds and traditions, and we can talk about Jesus, and we would find that many individuals would be very positive. Even in talking with outright pagans about Christ, you can have some very healthy and very good conversations. But where the gloves come off and where the fight breaks out, where the tension springs forth and the hurt feelings come about, is that when we place a period after Jesus instead of a comma. 
In other words, we always like to say Jesus and then put a comma or Jesus and then dot, dot, dot. And then we leave an open slate for something that we contribute to it. However, when we say Jesus with a period, we say faith with a period. Faith is a complete gift to us. Or when we say that it is by grace alone, it's the alone that is so offensive towards our old Adam. Uh, Our old Adam, our sinful nature, always wants to be able to have a part on the playground of our spirituality, being able to have his hand in acquiring righteousness, to have a little bit of involvement or contributing our spiritual resume, if you will, towards our justification. But we know from not only the scriptures, but we hear clearly from Jesus and as well as the Apostle Paul that it is Christ with the period. It has to be. It absolutely has to be. If, if there would even be 1% that depends on Matt Richard, I'm going to mess up that 1% and ruin the whole thing. It has to be Christ with the period. And if it is not, my goodness, we're in such deep danger. I really like that. Christ with a period. That's exactly the confession, the Lutheran confession that we have. And also then becomes of great importance with the next subsequent points, which is really maybe kind of the hub of this particular article. As we covered last week, the Anabaptist name itself means rebaptizers. It was a name that they didn't choose for themselves. It was ascribed to them, kind of like us as Lutherans. Luther didn't want us to be called Lutherans. We were called that, and we've kind of taken that on to distinguish who we are. But the Anabaptizers, they believe in this rebaptism, and it's connected, I believe, with what you were just talking about, too. That it's not just Christ with a period. It's not just faith alone in Christ alone. And so I'm going to cover the next several points as they're all connected together by baptism, various sub points and articles that we reject and condemn and are getting clear confession on. But as baptism is the connecting factor, I'll just go ahead and read these together and allow you to expand upon that a little bit further. So this is point four, five, and six. And so it will be paragraphs six through eight here that I will read. So once again, from the epitome of the Formula of Concord, Article 12, this is paragraph 6.4. Children who are not baptized are not sinners before God, but righteous and innocent. In their innocence, because they have not yet gained the use of their reason, children are saved without baptism. According to their assertion, children do not need baptism. Therefore, they reject the entire teaching about original sin and what belongs to it. And then paragraph 7.5. Children are not to be baptized until they have gained the use of their reason and can confess their faith themselves. Then paragraph 8.6, the children of Christians, because they have been born of Christians and believing parents, are holy and children of God, even without and before baptism. And for this reason, they do not attach much importance to the baptism of children or encourage it, contrary to the clear words of God's promise, which applies only to those who keep his covenant and do not despise it. See Genesis 17, verses 7 through 14, also Acts 2, verses 38 through 39, and Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. All right, thus far the epitome. All right, Pastor Richard, go ahead and give us what's going on with these rebaptizers and their discussion of baptism here. Well, we have, boy, quite a few things going on here, but I think in order to discuss this, we have to kind of back up and go to the foundation. And that foundation is this, how do we understand the human condition? How do we understand ourselves as human beings? And that really comes about with that idea of what we call original sin, the original sin of Adam and Eve. How does that play into all this? I think 
it could be stated that if we don't understand sin correctly, then it dominoes, almost if you think of a domino or a um, cause and effect, if we don't get that right out of the gate, then that impacts everything else. And so we must understand that the Anabaptists have a distinctly different view of original sin than the Lutherans did. And we even see this at play today in our modern context with many, many churches that we encounter here in America. In fact, I think before we can even sometimes talk about Christ, we need to start with that basis of how do we understand ourselves? Because the way that we understand ourselves is going to implement of how we understand Christ. So very simply stated, if I'm only, let's just say, challenged by sin, and I'm not dead in sin, if I'm just challenged by sin, then I do not need a Savior to give me life, redeeming life, to resurrect me from my death of sin. But if I'm only challenged by sin, then I just need Jesus as a helper or maybe a coach that would just kind of cheer me on in my spiritual journeys, trying to make it through. And so how we understand the human condition is then going to be implemented on how we understand baptism, as well as the role of faith and what faith is and so forth. So very briefly, before I believe we before we have that break coming up here, very briefly, when it comes to sin itself, we must understand that the Anabaptists did not see sin as this viral disease, this infection that we have inherited from Adam and Eve. They would not see sin as a corporate condition of all humanity. Rather, they would see sin as basically personal actions, a personal choice. It's not something that's part of our nature, but it is something that we do, wrong deeds. So we are sinners, not because of our condition. So we, we're sinners because of what we do, which is then negative and bad things. Maybe we can think of it this way. I know there's some Jewish views in the Old Testament of how they understand sin. They would see sin as, we think back to Genesis chapter 4, that sin is crouching at the door and we must resist it. Or sin is this desire of the heart, and we must fight against it. And so it's not necessarily a condition that has wrapped us up and entrapped us in this sinful disease of sin itself, but it is something that is crouching on the outside that we must fight and that we have the ability to fight. And so if we see sin as something that is not perverting our whole being, but something that is just a threat on the outside, well, then we must implement the willpower of our choice and our decisions then to fight that. Well, then that impacts how we understand faith. And then conversely, how we understand baptism in general. And then it just dominoes all the way through in how we understand the life of the Christian, how that is lived in the day-to-day life, and then how the church functions and so forth. And so it's all interconnected. So we must understand that our theology, the theology that we have, they're not individual isolated theological doctrines, but all the doctrines, they do have implications upon other doctrines and they can spoil the whole batch. As Jesus says, a little bit of leaven can spoil the whole batch. A little bit of yeast can permeate the whole batch and infect the whole theological system, if you will. And so with just about four minutes left here, I was thinking about this as you were talking here. I wonder if this does relate back to kind of, you always see a logical progression in what the confessors do in the various documents of the Book of Concord. They were very intelligent, logical thinking confessors. And I was thinking that maybe this is a a logical progression here is that once again, connected back to the Gnosticism that is rejected there and the emphasis on the spiritual and then kind of the living out of my works and things like that, which they call new monasticism. This then does present the issue to talk about, which has been talked about elsewhere as well, but they're just hitting here again, these specific issues as relate to baptism, because once again, 
as a spiritual being, they do not see, as you well said, that they're spiritually dead. They only view this as an attack from the outside. And so again, yeah, it's this kind of their use of their reason and their ascent to kind of a higher spiritual being, if you will, that is what living the Christian life looks like to them. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts with just a couple minutes here before break on maybe that being a connecting factor here? Yeah, consistently what you see with that view of Gnosticism is that there's going to be a shine away of anything that's material and material type things. And then we can believe this whole notion that we... We, we become very hypocrite. We become like almost like Gnostic hypocrites where in our mind, our spiritually thinking, we think through uh, the spiritual realm that we can be holy and just and so forth and the abilities in that spiritual realm. But then we're impeded by this difficult material world. And then so in order to compete and to be maintaining righteousness, then I must what not only fight against the material realm, but then withdraw from the material realm. And that's what's so incredibly dangerous is when we withdraw from that material realm, we leave reality. Reality for us as Christians is, yes, we indeed have a soul and we have a body, but we are located in our vocations. I think Gnostics, that Gnostic tendency is you see that played out where there's a resistance or a denial of our vocations, understanding that we are justified in Christ, redeemed in Christ, forgiven of all of our sins. And then the Lord places us back into these vocations as dads and as citizens, as workers, as sons and husbands and fathers, all these vocations then to serve in that material vocation to serve our neighbor, to love and to serve them in this pilgrimage, in this life under the sun until the day that we die. And until that day where we were placed in the grave, as we mentioned before, and then ultimately in that great last day, resurrected. And so the Gnostic tendency indeed takes us away from our vocations. It takes us away from that material realm. And it's a really a way to try to escape or I guess we could say escape or minimize or to somehow view that we can escape this whole problem of sin itself. But as we can contemplate this more, sin is something, it's a disease that has permeated both body and soul. And so the whole Christian needs redemption. The whole Christian needs forgiveness. And it's not exclusively just in that material realm. That is excellent. And we're going to go ahead and take a break here. But on the other side of the break, when they have this faulty reasoning of what kind of the diagnosis of the problem is, then that leads to faulty outcomes, as you said and already hinted at, but we'll get a little deeper into their theology and practice of baptism and what it is to be church and things of that as well. So you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Please join us right after this. Cross Defense is the show where we talk about curious topics to excite the imagination, equip the mind, and comfort the soul with God's Word. Join me, Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio, or anytime on KFUO.org, or even your favorite podcast app. My friends, our foe is a fierce enemy. Our only defense is Christ on the cross.
And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard, the pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota, who has been excellently confessing for us and laying out for us here something that I really picked up on as he was talking about that logical progression of what the confessors are doing here in the epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 12. And so I I continue to see this logical progression. I really like what you're highlighting here for us and laying out for us, that it really does become just beautifully practical in how we view our life as Christians. And so I'm seeing this logical progression here. You talk about how a faulty diagnosis of original sin then impacts how we view our faith, who Christ is, what he has come for. And then that would then seem pretty obvious that it impacts how we view the sacrament of baptism itself. And I think that's what the confessors are getting at here, is that this view of baptism is due to their faulty reasoning, their faulty diagnosis. And so go ahead then and talk about what is it that the Anabaptists and their heresies, their false teachings that stand against scripture, really, but how is that impacting how they're talking about baptism then? Yeah, very good question. Well, you know, what we want to, again, we want to start off with understanding how do we understand original sin. We would understand original sin dating back, obviously, to Adam and Eve, and that because of that sin, we have inherited this sin. And the sin, what is it? Well, sin itself, original sin, is that we cannot, by our nature, possess this true fear of God and true faith in Christ. And so, we're unable to make a decision, unable to make a choice, unable to exert our reason or our will toward God whatsoever. We think of all the miracles that Jesus did in the New Testament, and I think it's very, very clear that when he did these miracles, you know, he would come up to blind Bartimaeus, right? And he would give him sight. He would do the impossible to show that it was the spiritually and sometimes, many times, physically bankrupt individuals who needed to be totally given to a work done upon them. And so if we understand correctly out of the gates that we have original sin, which means that we cannot fear, love, and trust in God, that our ability to have faith is non-existent, then we understand that something has to be done to us, that we are passive recipients. And so if we see ourselves as passive recipients, then we understand that faith itself is not uh, equated with our reason or our intellect or an exertion of our will towards God, but faith is that instrument that is given to us to receive Christ and his gifts. I think the great, great picture, which I many times tell the blessed baptized saints here of St. Paul's, that if we want to understand what faith looks like, what a picture of faith is, it's basically a beggar with open hands. And a beggar who's laying on the side of the road basically does not open hands until a giver comes and says, here, I have a gift for you. And as a result of the gift and that proclamation of the gift, the hands go up. That faith is created in the individual to receive a gift. In fact, on Sundays, I always tell my congregation that I'm honored as a pastor to stand by that altar. And then I stand and I say, welcome to the Lord's table. And they kneel and their hands go open. And I get to lay the body and blood of Christ right into their hands. And I get to see the reactions on their faces. And many times they say, amen. I see many times there's tears and there's gratitude. And some people smile as they take and they receive. That is faith, receiving a gift, being a passive recipient. However, when it comes to these Anabaptists, they do not see faith as a receptive receiving 
but they would equate that the individual, because they're not completely restricted by original sin, that original sin has not completely made them dead, dead in their sins. If you think back to that, oh, it was at the movie Princess Bride. Uh, I love that movie, Princess Bride with uh, Wesley and, and Princess Buttercup. And uh, my, my kids watch this uh, show. It's a flick from the 80s. And I love there's a scene in there where Wesley is dead and they go to this Mad Max, his name, he's a uh, potion maker. And he said, well, he's not dead. He's mostly dead, which means he's partially alive. And it's kind of a funny, funny section of the show. And so I would say that the Anabaptists would see that we're not fully dead, but perhaps partly alive. And if we're partly alive, then we can exert our reason and our will towards God as a act of our obedience, an act of our faith. And faith, instead of that being a receiving mechanism, it is then an act of our will towards God. And then thus that impacts how we would view the sacrament of baptism. So instead of baptism, God coming and washing us and plucking us from darkness into light, then baptism is transformed into a visible symbol or a display of our obedience towards God. So instead of that being where God claims us, a work of God, then baptism becomes a work of man and a symbol of obedience. And so if we make baptism into our work then, and I completely agree with you here, is that is what their theology then works out. That would seem then to impact the practice of what they end up doing in baptism. And I think that, especially for our listeners, that we would still see evidence of this sort of theological framework in place impacting the practice of churches and Christians still today, that you'll see things that happen precisely because of this theology. And so what are maybe some things that we would see this in the practice today? Yeah, very good question. You know, I don't think I can count the number of times. It's been quite a few, more than a dozen times, where I've had conversations with individuals who have perhaps maybe grown up in the Catholic Church or Lutheran Church where they were baptized as an infant. And in visiting with them, they will share with me many times, well, you know, I was baptized when I was a baby, but I don't really remember that. I didn't make a decision. I I wasn't cognitively aware with my reason when I was baptized. So later on in life, I was told that I needed to be rebaptized, And that was the time, they'll say, when my faith got real, when my faith got really real to me, because I, I, and usually you'll hear the word, the pronoun I, I made that decision. I committed my life. I did it as a display of my obedience and I got baptized. And so what you have at work there is essentially that same theology from the Anabaptists from the 15 and 1600s, that there's a denial of the infant baptism because there's a denial of original sin, and there's a denial of understanding that faith is a gift to us where we receive God's gift, and then they change it to faith being a decision of the will, a decision of the reason, and then baptism then becomes a symbolic reference or a celebration of one's commitment to God. Well, again, this is where we've hit this before the break when we were talking about this, that anytime we put the emphasis on our commitment, then the devil has a foothold because as we know, our commitment is not sure and secure. We are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God that we love. We are prone to fall into sin. And so as a result, if we make a commitment in our baptism and then three weeks later, we find ourselves backsliding, if you will, then what is the solution? Do I need to be baptized yet again? Did I not mean it well enough before? And then do I have to double down and commit harder? Do I have to have maybe more reason, a more stronger faith to commit yet again? And the cycle is vicious and it's endless. 
but rather we would want to properly see that, again, we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love, but then repentance is then not trying harder to do better with our will, but it is confessing that we have failed with our will. We have failed in our lack of faith. And then to be returned to that great baptism where Christ claimed us, where he did the work, where he holds us, and back to that position of receiving yet again. Yeah, I recognized when I was in my first congregation, my first parish ministry, I did campus ministry. And I saw a lot of my students wrestle with their Christian brothers and sisters on the campus and had a lot of invites to a lot of different of those sort of Christian fellowship groups and things like that, which tends to get dominated by what I broadly call just American evangelicalism, which is just a mix of all sorts of Reformed Anabaptists and and those sorts of theologies, Methabapticostals, I call them. And you would see this specifically come up in in what I would hear from my students that would try to be kind and respectful and they would go and visit some of these things, but were troubled by what they were hearing. And thankfully were talking to me about it is that especially when it comes to, you know, living a pious Christian life, living according to the way that we are called to live as Christians, they really had a different answer for then how we deal with that. And as you just highlighted for us, As Lutheran Christians, we say return to that same baptism. As Luther makes so beautifully clear for us in the small catechism, we should arise each day, make the sign of the cross upon ourselves, and remind ourselves of our baptism, drowning that old Adam and rising to new life again in righteousness and purity forever. That's our Lutheran answer. And so it looks like confession and absolution and those sorts of things that are all lived out of that same baptism. But what they were hearing from these other fellowship groups was really kind of troubling. And some of them, unfortunately, really kind of gave into some of these things. And I was really bothered by that and had to work with them lovingly on those sorts of things too, is that, yeah, it was tied in with kind of the altar call situation and, you know, to be baptized again, that word backsliding, they've slid back in their Christian walk and they need to get mastery of this again. And so even being invited to be re-baptized again and to make an intentional commitment, and it, it was definitely a focus on their works and their intention to master these sorts of things. And again, one just is so full of law being couched as gospel in their language, whereas the Lutheran answer is just pure gospel It's Christ, period, as you said in the first half of the show. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm thinking about, I'm trying to remember John chapter 14, 15, 16, that area where he talks about the vine and the branches. And I think that's such a vivid, such a vivid, wonderful picture to understand that Jesus is the vine and we are the branch. And what does he say in there? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so if you think of a branch disconnected from the vine, it dies. However, he says over and over in the scriptures to abide. And when we hear the word abide, I think we can maybe crassly define that or translate that as basically stop, stay put, don't leave, don't wander. But as we know from our sinful nature is that we like to wander, we like to leave. And so for us as Christians, I would say that our problem is not that we're not elevating higher and higher and higher. The problem is that we wander, we leave the God that we love. And so if we go down this path of us setting our own will and our own reason, our own strength to do things on our own, I'm afraid to say we are leaving that abiding presence of Jesus by 
drifting off into our own land by working by our own strength. But as the Christian, we are always abiding in the vine. And then it is connected to that vine that we have, again, that fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Holy Spirit. We're not the ones that produce this fruit. The, the Holy Spirit does, and we simply bear it. And when we're not bearing that fruit, well, that's where the law of God needs to come and prune us as a branch to cut off all that dead sin, to constantly prune us, and then to reconnect us always to that vine when we find ourselves wandering. And so I think it's fundamentally a different way of viewing the Christian faith in the everyday life. One is moving upward and onward in progressing in our own efforts and ambitions to some sort of carrot on the end of the stick that we never achieve. Uh, the other one's acknowledging that we have this problem of leaving, that we're tempted to sin, where we have the sinful condition itself as well, and we're always leaving, but repentance is returning back to Christ again and again and again. I like what you're identifying here for us, that to use your words there, I think you said that this is the Christian faith for everyday life. And it's certainly what we're going to see, especially next week as we jump into what this looks like in our Christian life in terms of the government. That's the next kind of subheading that Article 12 deals with. But then also in the domestic life is the next subheading on that. So we'll, we'll get into that next week. But I think even before we get there, once again, we see this logical progression at work. And as you've identified really well for us, this identifies our Christian life and then how that is lived in everyday life. And so that will impact how we view church and how it functions and who we are as Christians in the church. As baptized Christians, what does that mean for the church then? And so I think this connects us into the next three points and paragraphs that will finish us out here today, and we'll spend the rest of our time talking about this. So just to read them, this is, again, Epitome of the Formula of Concord, Article 12, paragraphs 9, 10, and 11, and points 7, 8, and 9 on the erroneous articles of the Anabaptists. So this is paragraph 9, point 7. There is no true Christian congregation or church in which sinners are still found. And paragraph 10, point 8. No sermon is to be heard or attended in those church buildings where formerly papal masses have been celebrated and said. And paragraph 11, point 9. A godly person must not have anything to do with the ministers of the church who preach the gospel according to the Augsburg Confession and rebuke the sermons and errors of the Anabaptists. Also, a person must not serve or in any way work for them, but must flee from them and shun them as perverters of God's word. All right, once again, thus far the epitome, and we'll spend the rest of the time talking about this today. And once again, it seems like the connecting factor here really is once again, identifying who we are as Christians, we have to do that rightly, and then that impacts how we view the church, and even, it seems pretty harsh here, of who can even be in church. Go ahead, Pastor Richard. Yeah, I, I, I think probably the best way of understanding this and seeing how this plays out is we can see this playing out in our modern-day context. And I think it really comes down to a very, very simple question, and that is this. Why do I go to church? Why do we go to church? Now, looking at this Anabaptist theology that is very much alive and well in our modern-day context in our American churches, many individuals will see, well, you know, I was saved by Christ through an event, maybe a decision of my will, and then that then becomes a past event, and then the focus and the emphasis then shifts from Christ for me, my justification, then it shifts towards this understanding of my renewal and my godliness, my way of life. 
And so then we would go down this road of our piety. Now, we want to make sure to stress this, that piety is not bad. To be pious is not bad. To be reverent before God and his gifts is not bad. But to do that reverence, to do that piety, drive from our own will as if we're trying to earn kudo points or brownie points before God, that is to plunge yourself into that great despair of works righteousness. But unfortunately, in our modern day context, there's this perception that my justification being saved is a past event. And now the emphasis is on me and my walk to progress higher and higher. And so Christ gets left in the back seat of the car, if you will, or perhaps the trunk. And then we are in the driver's seat. And then we come to church on Sundays to number one, to give our best to God, to show our obedience and our commitment to God as a display that we are indeed serious Christians and perhaps not lazy Christians. And then the pastor gets in the pulpit and the intent and the purpose of the pulpit is an exhortation of rules and tips and how we can improve on our journey of upward and onward. And so then we come and we admit that maybe we have not gone up as high as we have ought to, and that we have not been as renewed, and we get more pointers from the pastor of how to implement that even more. And then we sing some more to God to display that we are definitely obedient and committed. And then we go out and we try to implement what was taught to us. Now, if we contrast that towards the other way of understanding it. In our Lutheran churches, especially our Lutheran churches, the first thing we do is when we come into the doors is that we stand shoulder to shoulder and we say, shoulder to shoulder, I confess that I am a poor, miserable sinner, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed. And we confess that all week long that we have made a mess of things. Right from the get-go, right when we come to the door, there's no saying that we have done great. There's no confession or, or, or affirmation that we are climbing upward and onward. We say that we have hit rock bottom in our marriages. We have hit rock bottom when it comes to being our parents and our vocations and so forth. And then the bold confession of the pastor, he comes forth and he says, In the stead and by the command of Jesus, I forgive you of all of your sins. And the congregation breathes a sigh of relief and says, Thanks be to God. God be praised. I'm forgiven. And then we get to hear about Jesus who was for us in the sermon, how he forgives sinners, how he cleanses us, how he makes things right by settling the wrath of God, removing the condemnation of our sin. And then we're told how we're given the Holy Spirit who's going to work in us in spite of our failures and our sin. And then to make things even better, then we're invited as poor, miserable sinners who have been absolved of our sin to come and kneel as beggars and receive the life-giving body and blood of Christ for the strengthening of our faith and the strengthening of our love for our neighbors. And then we're dismissed with a blessing. And then we go throughout our week, and guess what happens? We have some great times of love towards our neighbor, assurance in Christ, and then we have a whole load of failures. And we come back to church again on Sunday, and we say, hey, I have messed up in thought, word, and deed. I'm a poor, miserable sinner. And we hear the forgiveness of sins. We receive the Lord's sustaining word and sacrament yet again to go back out in our vocations to serve our neighbor and to fail and to then thus return again and again and again to that vine to be strengthened and forgiven in Christ. I think one of the problems that often comes up with this is it's an understanding of Scripture. A lot of times, those who disagree with how we view, and I, I like how you just laid out there for us, our theology as Lutherans is shown in the way that we practice how we are as church, and especially as it plays out in our liturgy. But there's a lot of folks that really wrestle with understanding why we do that from a biblical perspective. And so what would be your biblical case for why we live out our Christian faith that way? 
Yeah, I think it comes back to uh, very simply stated Romans 7. Now, for the listener, Romans 7 is where Paul simply states, you know, the very good that I want to do, I don't end up doing. The very evil that I despise, I end up doing. And he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of sin and death? And then he goes on to say, thanks be to God that there's victory in Christ. And then we get into Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so we acknowledge that we are the baptized, but being the baptized does not mean that we are then free from the sinful nature. After baptism, sin remains. This original sin remains in us. And so we must always understand that our baptism is like that great white robe. I'm always reminded when I think of baptism, this hotel down in California that my wife and I would go to in San Diego. And we got admitted to this presidential suite and we kept on getting it because there were some sort of complications when we first went there. But we went there three or four times. And my first thing was I couldn't wait. I'd go get this big white robe and put it on. It was just this thick, wonderful, glorious white robe. And I always think of baptism that way, that this robe that covers all of our unrighteousness. And so this robe of baptism clothes us with righteousness. So God the Father looks at us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. But yet we still have this sinful old Adam that bleeds forth, that wreaks havoc in our lives. And so we have a civil war as a Christian where we have the righteousness of Jesus. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit at work in us. But we also at the same time simultaneously have this old Adam at work in us. So there's always going to be a daily fight. Every action, every event of our lives, every moment is going to be a battle between that old Adam and our new nature in Christ. And so the battle is always fighting this old Adam. So we come every Sunday to church admitting where we have failed, confessing where we have failed. We think of 1 John, the Apostle John. He talks about reality is what? When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. To live in reality is to confess where the old Adam has the upper hand at times, to confess where where we have failed with the sinful old nature, where we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. That is reality. And then coming back to the wonderful reality of who we are in Christ, that in spite of our sins, we're forgiven for Christ's sake, constantly battling that old Adam every day of our life. And that's where the church comes in. So the church is that place where we go to receive the word and sacraments, to be filled, if you will, to be forgiven, to be encouraged, to have our faith strengthened, uh, to be sustained as we live this life every single day with this civil war with our old Adam and the sin that entices us so much. I think that is excellently said. And then again, will distinguish us just by virtue of what is the church for and how we understand the living of our Christian life. And so, yeah, as these points make clear, we're going to have a different understanding of what the sermon is for. We're going to have a different understanding of why we gather together and who properly belongs there. And once again, it all comes back to our focus on Christ, who he is, who he has come for, and how that impacts the faithful living of our Christian life. You've confessed excellently for us today, Pastor Matthew Richard. Thank you so much for joining us for Concord Matters and talking us through this first part of Article 12 from the epitome of the formula of Concord, the various issues that we need clear confession in relation to the other factions, heresies, and sects that have never embraced the Augsburg Confession. Thank you so much. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. Church.